refrain and singing, just singing in the rain. Hold it, Dexter. Oh, well, Mr. Simpson, we're really rolling. Yeah, well, you can stop rolling at once. Huh? Don, Lena. All right, everybody, save it. Save it. Tell them to go home. We're shutting down for a few weeks. What? Well, don't just stand there. Tell them. Everybody go home until further notice. What is this? Yeah, what's the matter, R.F.? The jazz singer. That's what's the matter. The jazz singer. Oh, my darling little mammy. Now, little mammy. My little mammy. No, no, this is no joke, Cosmo. It's a sensation. The public is screaming for more. More what? Talking pictures. Talking pictures. Oh, it's just a freak. Yeah, what a freak. We should have such a freak at this studio. I told you talking pictures were a menace, but no one would listen to me. Don, we're going to put our best feet forward. We're going to make the dueling cavalier into a talking picture. Beautiful girl, you're a lovely picture. everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours, the movie review program. I'm Paul Spataro, and I am once again joined by my buddy, Blaine Dowler. Blaine, welcome aboard. Well, thanks for having me back, Paul. Uh, you know what? You're one of the people who I can have back to talk about old movies. <laughs> so I, I, I consider those to be uh, important connections in, in this show because I 
I'm not sure how everybody else feels about it, but I like hearkening back and talking about some old movies. I don't want to just make this a latest release type program. Yeah, I am good with that because there's I've encountered far too many people who say anything older than year X must be bad. And anyone who listened to us on my first appearance when we talked about Buster Keaton's The General knows that I pretty vehemently disagree with that. Yes, absolutely. And uh, as do I. I, you know, I, I, I think you may even have a broader taste for old things than I do, but I think I am still well beyond the average as far as that goes. So, you know, I, I, I've got a to-watch list that's that probably rivals yours. Okay. I, I know, uh, <laughs> I know you have a lot, but uh, I have a, a closet full of DVDs to watch. So, uh, you know, th- th- you 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 may find yourself busy between this show and your own. And before we get into things, rather normally I wait until the end of the show, but I wanted to just make sure I gave you a chance early on to pimp what you're doing since it's in the uh, the production uh, stage now. Uh, yet yeah, uh, there's a common is a jaws listener who tends to post on the two true freaks podcast network facebook pages as well his name is trey hooks and trey and i are doing a show called 99 years 100 films it's going to be a monthly show launching in december 2019 and we're going to go through every movie that's ever won best picture at the academy of the awards and the reason it's 99 years and 100 films will be explained in the podcast because one of those years had two winners Right, and I, I was aware of that, so that makes me feel very, very smart. <laughs> and uh, we were talking about lack of ego before, so I'm going to just blow that up right off the bat. And before we get into our movie, I also am very happy to say I've got some email, which I don't usually have. And I wanted to, if if you'll indulge me, Blaine, I wanted to read the email. Two of them are from people that are not you, and one of them is from okay. you. So I figure... While I have you on here, I'll read the other two, and then uh, we can address your comments as well. So the first one is from Jack Bond, uh, and he says, I haven't heard feedback on Is It Yours, but I had to add two words to the discussion of National Treasure. These words are Carmen Sandiego. I, too, expected the movie to be the Da Vinci Code politics, but catching catching it halfway through on cable found it to be the best possible pseudo-educational quest adventure one could want. And it's signed Jack. Okay, you know what? And so you totally agree with the Middletons, which is fine. I, I thought it was a really good story. I thought it was an entertaining movie. And my biggest drawback on it, as I made clear in our review, was I'm just not a Nicolas Cage fan, and I didn't buy him in the role of the learned professorial type. So... That was yeah. the detriment for me. Yeah, for, I need to revisit that one. I well, We talked about before how expectations can warp your perceptions. Mm-hmm. And I went into that opening night having heard enough reviews to go in expecting a Jaws 4 level movie. And I came out feeling like it was a very strong Jaws 2. Watching it now, I don't know if it would stay Jaws 2 if it dipped to Jaws 3. But it's it's definitely better than the initial reviews would indicate it was. So, I mean, you know, I I, uh, I ranked it as a Jaws 3 for me, and 
And I gave it essentially, uh, you know, slightly more verbose, but the same review I just did now. Enjoyable, but it just, you know, fell short for me. I don't really have any desire for multiple viewings on it. And uh, Scott, you know, everybody's mutual friend, Scott Gardner, was like, you hated it. <laughs> I was like, well, no, I didn't hate it at all. But he, you know, he, he expected, you know, he was expecting me to give it a Jaws ranking, I guess. So he was disappointed with my Jaws 3. Anyway, moving on to the next email. It's from Jeff Paco Lubin. Hi, I just today listened to your podcast reviewing Rio Bravo. I'm fairly new to your podcast. I first tuned in after hearing Shag mention you'd done Twister, another great movie. I know your Rio Bravo episode was almost a year ago, but I thought I'd go ahead and drop, drop a line your way. I love this movie. It was actually one of the last John Wayne Westerns I was exposed to growing up. I'm in my early 30s. I grew up on Roy Rogers, Gene Autry, and John Wayne, but this is one. This is this one is very possibly my favorite of the genre. Unlike some westerns, it isn't the most thought-provoking one. It's a fairly generic plot, but the characters are fun and well cast. The music and humor are great, and even a generic plot is made to work well here. I think it also benefits from the fact that it is filmed well and in color, so it's easier on the eyes. Nothing against black and white for modern. Excuse me, nothing against black and white for modern viewers. And it's just a fun movie. A lot of westerns feel very dated or have heavy, somber plots, which can make for great storytelling, but some days you don't want to feel the weight of the world. You just want a fun movie, and this one scores on that front. It was great listening to you guys, and in a world so focused on modern entertainment, it's refreshing to listen to people admire the old classics or even know who Gabby Hayes is, and I agree. Dean Martin had the coolness factor down to a science. Thanks for a fun listen, Jeff Paco Lubin. Well, thanks for the email, Jeff. And uh, I, I, you know, I'm significantly older than you, and I'm. It makes me feel good to hear somebody in their early 30s who's watching, you know, Gene Autry and John Wayne and Roy Rogers. So I think that's pretty cool. I'm thinking probably that's a tip of the hat to your parents because that's probably how you got exposed to that early on. Uh, but yeah, this was one of my favorites as well. If you couldn't pick that up from our review of it, and uh, I agree with everything you said about it. It's well, well acted, well filmed, well directed, and just you know, well written. I don't know if you have anything to add on that movie, uh, Blaine. I haven't seen Rio Bravo yet. Listening to it, I, it did make me rethink my perspective on John Wayne and what you guys were saying, because I was one of the people that was not. You know, I've never really been enamored by his acting ability. And mm-hmm. after hearing your comments, I went back and reviewed another one of his movies. I honestly forget which. It's in one of my massive 50 movies for $10 box sets. Okay, so probably so not one. one of his big name movies. Oh, no. No, it's one of those ones where, you know, it wasn't even a huge role. But um, I've appreciated that like, there's three main... I'd say that there's three main components to acting. There's... The delivery of the lines, there's the facial expressions, and there's the body language. Mm-hmm. And I've never been terribly impressed with his line delivery or his facial expressions. And I was neglecting the fact that watching it, he actually was excellent at the general body language. It's like the way he carried himself really did show a lot more than his face or voice would indicate. So, I would I would recommend that you watch the movie The Searchers, which I'm guessing you haven't seen. I have. Oh, you have, because I think that is one of his better performances, and and it does stand out to me in a lot of the scenes for his body language, because he's playing effectively a loner, 
that has kind of a familial relationship, but he's still a loner. And I think his body language really, really emphasizes that during the movie. Yeah, it, it could be. I wasn't thinking about that when I first saw it, because I actually saw it in a film studies course where our prof introduced it as like the pinnacle of the Western genre to the point where he said, if you don't find yourself totally engrossed in this film, give up on the Westerns. And I watched it and decided, OK, I now have permission to give up on the Westerns. Ooh, that's it feels harsh, but OK. <laughs> You know, to each their own. I, I, I always, I always make a point of saying, I don't, I don't criticize other people for not liking what I like. Uh, but I, I, I don't know if that is the pinnacle of westerns. I, I would have to give that a lot of thought, but it would certainly be on my list of top westerns. Yeah, and right now the only thing with the only shows with western elements that I've really enjoyed are Back to the Future Three and Firefly Serenity. And that's, I think, more the sci-fi that's catching me. I've just. I think in Serenity, yeah. it's probably the sci-fi. And in Back to the Future 3, it might be some of the comedy, too. Yeah, yeah it's it's all of those. But, like, Westerns as a whole, just a straight-up Western, have never greatly appealed to me. So the, that's. The, uh, the Western that's... aspect of Back to the Future 3. I'm sorry I interrupted you. The uh, Western aspect of Back to the Future 3 is really, you know, playing on the. Uh, you know, the tropes of the Westerns. It's really no, no, nothing original in there at all. But, but I, yeah, I mean, from, it's not to say I don't really enjoy that movie. I do. But yeah, I mean, bottom line, it's I, I recognize how well made The Searchers is. It's just not for me. Okay, that's fair enough. I, like I said, I can't, I can't criticize anybody else's tastes on anything. And there are certainly movies out there that I can appreciate the quality of the movie, but say exactly what you did, and it's you know just not for me. Uh, one that comes to mind pretty quickly is uh, Saving Private Ryan. I think it's an excellently okay. written movie, excellently directed, excellently acted. Saw it once. I could appreciate that. Have no desire to ever see it again. Okay. You know, people laud Citizen Kane as being the best movie of all time. I think it may be the best made movie of all time, but I don't think it's the best movie of all time. So, yeah, yeah I think part of my issue is Citizen Kane. And we will eventually talk about Singing in the Rain, guys, we promise. Um, <laughs> I have one more email to cover and then we're going to get to it. Yeah, but uh, what I found the issue with Citizen Kane is that I'd already seen M, directed by Fritz Long, which was actually released nine years earlier mm -hmm. when I saw Citizen Kane. And then when I watched it in film studies, again, the, the prof was you know saying how it's one of the most innovative films of all time. I started listing off things that were invented for Citizen Kane, and I was sitting there thinking, you mean reinvented because these were also done in M. Yeah, and, and frankly, like I said, while, while I can appreciate the quality of the movie, it's not even my favorite Orson Welles movie. So yeah, yeah. It's, but if you ever want to do uh, "Am" by Fritz Long, that's uh, you know what I don't think I've ever watched it, so that might be a good one to put on the list at some point. Uh, and what my my favorite Orson Welles movie? I'm not going to bother going any further because who knows? Maybe we'll cover that at some point too. So my last email is from this guy named W. Blaine Dowler, and it says, "Hi, Paul and guests." I finally listened to your Battle for the Planet of the Apes coverage after seeing all five of the original films. Having watched all five films in four days, I want to respond to Andy's interpretation of the fifth film, in which he read the film as having said that time cannot be changed. 
I had the complete opposite interpretation. Watching the series in such a compressed manner, it was more obvious when history changed. If you go back to the third film and watch the scene when Cornelius explains the history of their world, he says that the first ape to speak and lead the revolution was a gorilla named Aldo. The fact, the fact that is now Caesar who fills that role instead means that history has already changed, hopefully for the better. Thus, history can change, and we can see exactly how it has. Keep up the great work, Paul Blaine. Uh, yeah, I got to agree with you that I don't remember what opinion I gave in that particular uh, commentary when we did it. It's been several years since we did it. Uh, the interesting thing is, I kind of always looked at the, uh, you know, the, the the narrative by Cornelius about how apes came to talk. And then the fact that they changed it in the next movie, I always saw that as less planned and more of a just kind of continuity error that they made. But then when you put it in perspective, as you did, you can, I, you, well, you're either seeing what their actual intent is or we're no prizing it in such a way that it makes sense. And either way, I, I kind of like that interpretation. Yeah, I do feel it was planned because I think having a gorilla named Aldo mentioned in film three and then be the adversary to Corn to Caesar, sorry, in film five, a gorilla named Aldo would just be too coincidental in those roles. Well, you don't know how much revisionist history there is, but when they talk about it, a lot of times they make it sound as if as they made each movie, they thought it was going to be the last one, which would, yeah. which would go against the thought that they had planned out that eventually they were going to have Aldo in oh. the fifth movie. Yeah. Uh, when, Sorry, I, I should clarify my statement. When I said it was planned, I mean, like, not that when they were writing movie three, they knew that this was going to show up in movie five. I'm saying when they were writing movie five, they decided to pull that piece out of movie three and deliberately rewrite it to show that history can be changed. That's very possible. I, I, I'm not sure if I'm giving them that level of credit for having thought it all out, but... Like I said, whether whether it was planned out by them or if it's just a uh, a, a quality interpretation of, of serendipitous uh, things, uh, I'll take it either way and say, yeah, I, I I am on the side of saying that that they're saying history can be changed and is not written in stone. Mm -hmm. And I still have it's still uh, uncertain to me as to why the lawgiver is crying. Yeah, the why the statue is crying. That was one I was when I pulled out the the commentary that you guys had. I was looking forward to hearing you discuss that to, to help me make sense of it because I was coming up with nothing. Yeah, well, because I think the popular conceit is that it was crying because you can't change history, and while you can make minor minor changes in it, eventually it's going to go back to you know what's set in stone. And, and yeah, that, that was, that's a lot of the interpretation, but it could be tears of happiness. I, I don't know. You can interpret it however it, you like. What was it? I think yeah, it was. It, uh, I think it was in, in the show Lost, where they they talked about uh, like the time stream literally as a stream, and if you're going to change it, it has to be something significant. Throwing a pebble into a stream doesn't change it, so you'd have to like drop a tree in there to to, to dam it up or to change it. You know, truly. Uh, and it's an interesting thought when you look at it that way. Yeah, I mean, it could have been like an all roads lead to Rome thing where they're going to pick a different path to the same destination. But I don't know. 
to me, that just says, okay, Tim Burton did not innovate a completely nonsensical ending to a Planet of the Apes film. Uh, I don't even want to. I don't even want to get into the Tim Burton one because I'm not a fan. Yeah, I. Uh, I Although they, we did they got the money. The show. It's the, yeah, it's the only one I don't own because I figure they got money out of me for opening night in the theaters, and I I try not to make the same mistake twice. Yeah, they got money out of me even in the theaters as well, and I do not own one either. Yeah, that's, that's actually the only, the only, the only the franchise. Yeah, that's the only Planet of the Apes movie that I do not own, and it will yeah. remain that way, <laughs> unless they make another one that I consider to be a bad movie. Anyway, Singing in the Rain. <laughs> we might as well get yes. to that now that we've been on as long as we have, and we haven't even <laughs> touched on this yet. Uh, I don't remember. Did we actually suggest that we were going to do this last time out, or is this something you came to me after the fact with? Um, yeah, when we were recording Charade. This was one of the two that we we suggested in the recording. That podcast hasn't come out yet, so I don't know if it's going to make the final edit. But we suggested this in North by Northwest. I think you suggested North by Northwest because Charade was frequently compared to Hitchcock in terms of style. I'd go back to that podcast to listen to our thoughts on whether or not that comparison is totally warranted. It was also directed by Stanley Donen, who co-directed Singing in the Rain with Gene Kelly. Right. Which is why that came up. Okay, and then well, we were saying one of those two probably next. And we picked this one just because my fiance had never seen singing in the rain, but she has seen North by Northwest. So we went with this one. Now I had never seen singing in the rain until Debbie Reynolds passed away. And then with all the talk about it, I decided, you know what, let me give this a shot because I had always heard it's the best musical of all time. And for me, and I am, I do not shy away from musicals. I know some people just do not like them. Uh, I, I can, you know, to me, it's like anything else. There's good ones, there's bad ones. Uh, I would say for me, the apex would be West Side Story. That's like my personal okay. favorite musical. Uh, and then I heard, you know, this is the best of all time. And this, you know, it's only uh, about eight years prior to West Side Story, so, so let me give it a shot, and I watched it last year after Debbie Reynolds passed away, and I have to say, I enjoyed it very much. I don't know if it surpasses uh, West Side Story, in my opinion. In fact, it does not, uh, but it was very good. I really enjoyed it. How were you introduced to this movie? Uh, my mom was a huge fan of this and other old movies. I mean, her favorite movie of all time is Casablanca, in which Humphrey Bogart plays Richard Blaine. So right there, mm -hmm. that should tell you something about how much she loves films. Uh, and that goes back to her parents. So she introduced this to me. And when I say it goes back to her parents, my mother's name is Glynis because my grandmother went into labor when they were on the way home from a Glynis Johns film. <laughs> so I, I, so. I, you better be careful when you have children. Uh. <laughs> to, to what movies you're watching at that time yeah well it's it's at the point i mean for me it's very common for children to i find themselves attached to movies they like and watch them over and over and over again um, so for me the three movies that i was basically watching on loop as a child were ghostbusters superman 3 and singing in the rain and i still really enjoy two of those three to this day Okay, well, I'm guessing that's Ghostbusters and Singing in the Rain. 
So I'm, I'm thinking yeah. Superman three has dropped some in your estimation since childhood. It, it has, and I I chalk up my childhood love of Superman three to the fact that that was the first live action Superman I saw. So it was the first time I saw Chris Reeve in the role. Mm-hmm. And had I seen them in closer to the numerical order, I would have said yes. The first two surpassed the last two quite easily. I think it's probably a good point to interrupt our discussion and give the plot for Singing in the Rain. Okay. Before we get too much into the recap, I'm going to spoil it a little bit and say that by the time we're done, we're both going to say this is a film worth watching. And there are some pretty big reveals in the first 15 to 20 minutes that are best enjoyed spoiler free. So if you haven't seen it yet, you might want to pause the podcast, check it out and then come back to it because there's no way we can give an adequate synopsis of the film without spoiling some pretty good early reveals. Yeah, I th- actually, Blaine, I think that's good advice. Uh, and I think we, we are going to both say that this is a movie worth watching. Uh, I'm going to put the stipulation on that, that you have to be somebody who doesn't hate musicals. If, if, music, if you're one of these people who just, you know, cringes at the thought of a musical, then you know, listen to the rest of our review and don't worry about it. Uh, but if, but if, you know, if you find musicals to be acceptable, then by all means, I would recommend you watch this first and then, then hear what we have to say. And you probably enjoy what we have to say more after you've actually seen it and can picture it in your mind. So the plot is as follows. <clears throat> Don Lockwood, Gene Kelly, is a popular silent film star with humble roots as a singer, dancer, and stuntman. Don barely tolerates his vain, cunning, and shallow leading lady, Lena Lamont, played by Gene Hagen, though their studio, Monumental Pictures, links them romantically to increase their popularity. Lena is convinced they are in love, despite Don's protestations otherwise. At the premiere of his newest film, The Royal Rascal, Don tells the gathering crowd an exaggerated version of his life story, including his motto, Dignity, always dignity. His words are humorously contradicted by flashbacks showing him alongside his best friend, Cosmo Brown, played by Donald O'Connor. To escape from his fans after the premiere, Don jumps into a passing car driven by Kathy Selden, played by Debbie Reynolds. She drops him off, but not before claiming to be a stage actress and sneering at his undignified accomplishments as a movie star. Later at a party, the head of Don's studio, R.F. Simpson, played by Millard Mitchell, shows a short demonstration of a talking picture, but his guests are unimpressed. To Don's amusement, Kathy pops out of a mock cake right in front of him, revealing herself to be a chorus girl. Furious at Don's teasing, she throws a real cake at him, only to hit Lena right in the face. She runs away. Don is smitten with Kathy and searches for her for weeks. While filming a love scene, Lena tells him that she had Kathy fired. Don finally finds Kathy working in another Monumental Pictures production. She confesses to having been a fan of his all along. After a rival studio has an enormous hit with its first talking picture, the 1927 film The Jazz Singer, R.F. decides he has no choice but to convert the the next Lockwood Lamont film, The Dueling Cavalier, into a talkie. The production is beset with difficulties, including Lena's grating voice and strong New York accent. And I'm going to interrupt the uh, review here to say, that's supposed to be a New York accent? Please. (laughs) <laughs> and exasperate. I mean, you know, I, I've lived in New York my whole life. I've never met anybody who, who has a voice that annoying. And exasperate. Yeah, I didn't get New York from it. I got more 
like California Valley Girl before that was even a thing. Yeah, I, I, you know, let California have it. <laughs> so it was a, an exasperated diction coach tries to teach her how to speak properly, but to no avail. The du- Dueling Cavaliers test screening is a disaster. The actors are barely audible thanks to the awkward placing of mi- microphones. Don repeats the line, I love you, to Lena over and over to the audience's derisive laughter. And in the middle of the film, the sound goes out of synchronization with hilarious results as Don's voice is heard while Lena is speaking and vice versa. Don, Kathy, and Cosmo come up with an idea to turn the Dueling Cavalier into a musical called The Dancing Cavalier, complete with a modern musical number called Broadway Melody. Cosmo, inspired by a scene in The Dueling Cavalier where Lena's voice was out of sync, suggests that they dub Lena's voice with Kathy's. RF approves the idea but tells them not to inform Lena about the dubbing. When Lena finds out, she is infuriated. She becomes even angrier when she discovers that RF intends to give Kathy a screen credit and a big publicity buildup afterwards. Lena threatens to sue RF unless he orders Kathy to continue working uncredited as Lena's voice. RF reluctantly agrees to her demands, as a clause in her contract states that she can sue whenever denied a role of her choosing. The premiere of The Dancing Cavalier is a tremendous success when the audience clamors for Lena to sing live. Don, Cosmo, and RF tell her to lip sync into the microphone while Kathy, hidden behind the curtain, sings into a second one. While Lena is singing, Don, Cosmo, and RF gleefully raise the curtain, revealing the fakery. Lena flees. A distressed Kathy tries to run away as well, but Dawn proudly announces to, announces to the audience that she's the real star of the film. Later, Kathy and Dawn kiss in front of a billboard for their new film, Singing in the Rain. So, again, popularly the best musical of all time. Not quite that for me, but a really, really good and enjoyable musical. And I'm not going to ask you to give it the jaw scale yet, but I'm curious as to what you think of it, just as a general take. Um, the way I put it when we discuss Charade is that I do consider it the best musical of all time, but I wasn't going to leak whether that was a Jaws 1 or Jaws 2, because I do have issues with musicals in general that I will elaborate on when it comes time to put it on the scale. Yeah, well, a lot of people just have issues with the concept that people just burst into song out, out of nowhere in, in their everyday life. And and I can understand that, and I can appreciate that, and, yeah, it seems a little silly. Uh, but, you, you know, it, there's a lot of silly things that I watch that I enjoy. So, like I said, I don't really have a problem with the concept of a musical. I just want it to be entertaining and well done. The thing that jumped out at me was the performance of Donald O'Connor. And I'm going to to want to talk about him a little bit more in depth in a moment. But I think we should work our way down and start with uh, Gene Kelly as the star of the movie. And I've often heard the comparisons of who is the best dancer of all time. Is it Gene Kelly? Is it Fred Astaire? And then at one point, people were like sticking Michael Jackson into the conversation. Uh, I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> the dance styles are all so dissimilar. And it's funny because you, if you look on YouTube, you'll f- you can find performances where Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly danced on the stage at the same time. And it's interesting because they are very, very different. Fred Astaire had a look as he was dancing. You know, it, it looked like he was floating on air. Gene Kelly didn't have that look, but he was very, very smooth, just the same. 
yeah. definitely a different style, but both of them, you know, really top notch. And and I just look at it and and I you know I think wow, <laughs> I couldn't even take the first step at something like this. Uh, but beyond that, I thought his line delivery was really well done. He just had this appeal to him. He had this charisma. Hmm. Every time he was in, you know, in, in the camera, and I'm sure it didn't hurt that he was, uh, you know, part, at least partly a director of the film. I'm sure he had a lot to say in the yeah. camera angles that he was in and how he was portrayed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he did have a lot of input, and apparently he and Stanley Donnan were really coordinating, working almost like first and second units. The way Donald O'Connor described it on the Blu-ray commentary is that. You know, he'd seen co-directed films and watched the directors go off to argue and delay production. Whereas Kelly and Donnan, if they had any arguments, it was just between the two of them in private. And by the time they showed up to film, they both knew exactly what they wanted. And that's exactly what was turned in. There were no surprises for either of them when they watched the dailies from the other one. So they were apparently very well in sync, which is necessary because this actually had a fairly rushed production schedule. Uh, it was filmed in the middle of an American in Paris. Okay. You, you want to touch so, on that a little bit now? Because I know we, we had a, a, a slight discussion about uh, American Paris, which is a movie I have not seen. But I know, Blaine, you, you recently rewatched that. I did, yeah. Uh, for the first time since I was a child. And an American in Paris is something that we will cover on 99 Years 100 Films because it did win Best Picture for the 1951 releases in the 1952 ceremony. And that one is the one that Gene Kelly considered his magnum opus, but there were just issues getting things set up. So Kelly became available. He came, did sing another rain almost for fun, went back, shot another four months of an American in Paris, and then came back to do the Broadway melody number and sing another rain. And I would say, an American in Paris is a musical that I know a lot of people love. For me, it doesn't really work in general because that's one where the musical numbers don't support the story. They supplant the story and the dance numbers just take over in between elements of a weak story. Okay. Now, so. you know, un- until I finally sat down and watched this movie, my exposure to it had been, you know, basically on clip shows or clip movies like That's Entertainment. So I, I had yeah. seen the Singing in the Rain uh, performance probably 25 times before I ever actually saw the movie. Uh, or uh, Good Morning I had seen before. You know, th- there was a lot of stuff that wasn't new to me. Um, mm-hmm. And I've seen clips from An American in Paris as well. And that seems to be from the clips at least, seems to be a less joyful movie. I, I would, if secondary to being a musical, I would term this a comedy. I don't know about American in yeah. Paris. I, I don't know what, how, how would you say that lines up to this stylistically? Um, yeah, I would say Singing in the Rain is definitely a romantic comedy with musical numbers in it. Whereas mm-hmm. An American in Paris is... It's more of a romantic drama, and even the romance isn't – I didn't find it particularly romantic. I mean, Gene Kelly's character falls for a 17-year-old character, 
and comes on far too strong. She clearly says not interested and he doesn't take no for an answer, like dragging her away from her friends and onto a dance floor and pulling her closer and that sort of thing. It, it really did not play for me. And I think with modern Kelly sensibilities. in the early 50s would have been probably around pushing 40. So that puts him about double the age of his co-star in that movie. Uh, yeah, in well, in Singing in the Rain here, Debbie Reynolds was 19 when she was cast, and Gene Kelly was already about 36 or 37. Right. So he was about double her age, and they were filmed right around the same time. In American yeah. in Paris, it was Leslie Karen, and I haven't checked. the. I think the actress was older than the character. So okay. it didn't play quite as bad, but the dialogue clearly states she's 17, and not only that, unknown to Gene Kelly's character, she was actually dating one of his character's friends. Oh, so it makes and, it, it's got double element of creepy. Yeah, and it's just, it is very somber. Um, even the dance numbers are not nearly as joyful. It is much darker lighting. It's it's not meant to be a happy film. It's more of a slow brooding with a lot of ballet numbers. Yeah, that's that's the impression I got, and I don't feel any immediate rush to see it. Um, yeah, if I would say if you watch musicals, primarily for the musical numbers and the dancing, then it's easy to recommend an American in Paris because that really the dancing is front and center and everything else is incidental. I can only think of maybe a four or five minute sequence uh, with Oscar Laurent. I want to say was the actor's name where he was nailing comedy and he's the actor that the role of Cosmo Brown was written for, but because of the tight shooting schedules for the two films, he wasn't available. So they got Donald O'Connor because he was between Francis the Talking Mule movies, <laughs> and he was available. See now, now again, just talking musicals in general, I find I enjoy and I get much more pleasure out of uh, tap dancing numbers and big production numbers. Uh, you know, where there's a lot of people dancing in synchronization. You know, usually the you know the big finales or or you know the the upbeat moments. Whereas the moments I've seen from an American in Paris, and I don't want to belabor American in Paris too long, but they seem to be more of the almost type, almost like ballet or, you know, that type of dance, which I don't get nearly the same amount of pleasure out of watching. Yeah, it is very much ballet to the point where the big finish in an American in Paris is, I think, an 18 minute ballet sequence. And they were committed to producing. Uh, Hollywood's greatest ballet sequence of all time. And they may have accomplished that. I I don't know enough about dancing to distinguish which are the best. Like even between Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire, I could not tell you who was the better dancer because from my perspective, they're both flawless. So how do you pick up one that's better than the other? Oh, I would agree, with, I would agree with that take on it. I would agree with that. It's, yeah. it's, I think it's a matter of taste. I do think they have yeah. different styles. Like I said, you know, uh, Fred Astaire appeared almost to be like floating on air, whereas Gene Kelly was not, not that he was heavy footed at all, but he just didn't have that same uh, floating appearance. So I think it really comes down to stylistically just which one you enjoy more, not a matter of one yeah. being better than the other. Uh, whereas as, also, as dancers, I, yes, I, I would say Gene Kelly is probably the better actor of the two. From what I've seen, I would I would agree with that also. But Gene Kelly never had a really really good role in a uh, animated Christmas special either, though. Yeah, Fred Astaire has Santa Claus is coming to town. Yeah, and uh, well, Gene Kelly did go on to direct Xanadu. Does that count for anything? 
no. Unless you're Bill Robinson, in which case then it gets credit. But uh, not not for me personally, no. Uh, but anyway, and in fact, you never know. I may cover that with Bill one day. So let, let's go on with this one. Now, I had heard, and I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but I had heard that Debbie Reynolds was not a dancer when she was cast in this movie and that all of her dancing came from lessons that she had for this movie. I don't know if that's true or not. Yeah, Debbie Reynolds did not enjoy her time on this film. She talked about it in her one-woman show in Las Vegas. And my, my mom was such a fan of this film that she and my father flew to Las Vegas to see her in that one-woman show. And mom got her autograph later, which remind me, because there's a story to that. I'll try and remember. But, uh, yeah, Debbie Reynolds came in with a gymnast background. And, you know, a lot of people... They've gotten mixed reviews of Gene Kelly as a director. On the one hand, he is open to ideas from absolutely anybody who's got any job on the set. You could be a grip. You could be a gaffer. If you've got an idea, he will listen to it. And he doesn't care where the idea came from. If it's going to make the movie better, he will implement it. The downside to that is that if the thing that made the movie better was to have Debbie Reynolds keeping step with people who've been dancing all their lives when she had no formal dancing practice, well, he was an unforgiving taskmaster who said, no, you're going to learn to do this and do it in six weeks' time. So well, I got to tell you, was, what I saw on the screen looks like they did a damn good job with it. Because I, did. didn't, I didn't, you know, as somebody who doesn't really know dancing to speak of, I did not see any point in her dancing where I thought, boy, she can't keep up with them. That never entered my mind. Oh, yeah, she was there, and it was long, it was hard, it was grueling. She first met Fred Astaire at the end of shooting. She just did not have the strength to go home. So she was curled up crying with her feet bleeding in her shoes underneath the piano on stage. And Fred Astaire went by and heard this girl crying and found her and actually reached out and comforted her and talked to her and said, no, you know what, it's going to all be worth it. I've been hearing about this movie. You're going to pull it off. This is going to be great. And he helped do a lot to comfort her. If you listen to the commentary on the DVD, it's got the writers. It's got Stanley Donnan. It's got uh, Donald O'Connor. And Debbie Reynolds' voice is in there. But it's weird. She doesn't actually contribute any anecdotes of her own. They have her introducing other people. So everyone recorded separately. The writers recorded together. But it was like Donald O'Connor was on his own. Stanley Donner was on his own. They had the director of the recent Moulin Rouge because it was recorded around the time that Moulin Rouge was big and they thought it was going to bring the musicals back. So he was in there and all Debbie Reynolds ever does in that is just introduce them because she grew to recognize how good the movie was. Mm -hmm. But she has very few fond memories of the actual production itself because it was so grueling because she was just not. This this was not her background, right? But but eventually it became her background. No, doing anyway. Going forward, I think it became her background. So uh, I guess it, it worked out. Kelly okay. just made her work. He just had her practicing the numbers eighteen hours a day, seven days a week, with that choreography with those numbers. So she had to learn these exact steps for these exact dances to get away with it. Mm-hmm. And so I, he just like I said, I think said, they did a hell of a job. I think, uh, I, you know. I think one of the signature moments is when they do Good Morning, and I just think it's terrific watching the three of them dance in synchronization the way they do. And, and it's yeah. just it's it's a very 
upbeat, happy type dance. That's the type of dance, like I was saying, when when I watch dancing, the type of numbers I appreciate, and that's one of them. Something like that. Uh, another one, and this this is just my being a master of segue here, is Donald O'Connor's solo dance, where he yeah. he's he's just phenomenal. I had no idea that this guy was so talented. Over the years, you know, when I was growing up and I saw him on things, he was always kind of the background supporting player, and he is a supporting player in this movie, but he can command the, the screen by himself. He didn't need, you know, he he didn't need other people on the screen with him. He was able to do it on his own, and and you know what a great dancer he was. Yeah, it's I said that this role was originally written for somebody else, but I think it's a happy accident that it ended up with Donald O'Connor in that role anyway. Just, I mean, maybe Oscar could have pulled it off, but I can't picture anybody else in the role of Cosmo Brown. Who, who else? Seen who who was it? Do you know who it was written for? I, his it's Oscar something who was the Gene Kelly's co-star in an American in Paris. Okay. And I'm blanking on his last name. I should have looked that up, but well, it's one of these uh, roles where he seemed so absolutely perfect for it that it's hard to imagine somebody else playing it as well. You know, you, you never know, but it's, it's just hard to imagine that in my, in my mind. Yeah. To me, it's, I mean, the, the recasting was done for far less tragic reasons, but it is, you know, as beneficial to the film as it was to recast Peter Venkman as Bill Murray after the death of John Belushi. I mean, mm. that, that role was written for Belushi, but I can't see anyone but Murray in it now. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, it seems you know he pretty much I, I won't go as far as to say he carries that movie, but he is kind of the undisputed star of it. Yeah, so yeah, he is the the one that stands out. It, it's it's definitely a, a role that that he was he was he was very very qualified to take, and I'd say the same thing for Donald O'Connor. And the thing that amazes me, uh, taking it back to Donald O'Connor, is uh, when he's performing that scene, the facial movements he makes. Uh, yeah. you know, for, for comedic purposes, but uh, I, I don't know how anybody has that kind of control over their facial muscles. Yeah, I, I don't get it either. Like, you know, when he smacks her to the brick wall and bends his nose, I don't know how he kept his nose that bent. And that was another grueling one to do because Donald O'Connor f- smoked four packs a day. They filmed that in a day. Mostly in one continuous take, you might notice. So there's a, mm-hmm. a few very long takes in the middle of that. And when it was done, he had three days bed rest. Because the smoking habit was so bad, he could barely do it. And some things, like at the end, he runs up first a couple of slanted walls to do backflips. And then the third one, he, he jumps through the wall. I didn't realize until they were doing the commentary. When he suggested that, Gene Kelly says, sounds great, but can you do that? And Donald O'Connor's response was, I don't know, I never tried. Let's find out. <laughs> so the first time he did it, he did it on camera. He took three days bed rest. He came back and found out somebody mishandled the negatives and all the footage was destroyed and they had to shoot it all again. Oh, God. Well, I don't know if the original could have been any worse, than, any better, rather, than what they got, though, because that, that is just a, a phenomenal number in the song, in the movie. Yeah, that... That is one of the standouts. I mean, Singing in the Rain might be the title piece, but that the title of the of the film was determined before they even knew what it was about. Yeah, um, well, <laughs> excuse me. They uh, 
you know, the, the song itself was from 1929, and mm-hmm. obviously, uh, you know, it almost seems like a modern uh, trope where they name these movies after songs, but I guess not. Uh, you know, there's so many, and I, I can't think of examples off the top of my head, but there's so many that, that come out and it's, you know, uh, a song from the 60s or whatever, or the 70s, and that they have the movie named after it. Uh, and I guess, you know, it, it is something that existed well before that uh, recent time. And in, in Singing yeah. in the Rain, that's what they did. They had the song first and then decided to make a movie around it. Now, I guess we should yeah. talk a little bit about that sequence. Uh, that is, that's an interesting dance number because the style kind of varies throughout. There's points where he is almost doing kind of a ballet dance in the rain, and then there's other points where it's a tap dance. And then there's the other scene when he's like, you know, purposely splashing the water where, you know, that's the one where he's the absolute anti-Fred Astaire, where he's yeah. got tremendous weight to his dance as he's doing it. And then, uh, you know, the cop comes along while he's doing it, and I, I always think, you know, well, what's the cop care if he's dancing and singing in the rain? What, is he going to arrest him for it? Uh but you know, then he, he sheepishly walks away, and it, it's it's a an incredibly well choreographed scene, and I assume that's all Jim Kelly's doing. Yeah, they he had it all planned out, and all they knew is the camera was going to have to follow him. They they said what the original idea of the writers. Well, I mean, it started with producer Arthur Freed, who actually wrote all the songs. So he started as a composer, and then he became a producer, and convinced. The, the studio MGM to make a movie based on all of his songs. And the writers said, well, you know what? All these songs belong in the late 1920s when they were written and popular. And that's why they decided to set the movie then. And then figured all well, that was, you know, they want something happy. There was the turmoil from the silent movies. Can we do something with that in a comedic style? And that's how it all came together. But that's why they had the flashback in the dancing cavalier to the Broadway melody, because they needed a way to get the Broadway melody in there. What, what, what a great contrivance to, to, you know, the script to have it that, uh, you know, they're, they're making the switch to talkies and this big silent star, you know, has got the most irritating grating voice in the world and, and they have to figure out a way yeah. to get around it. I mean, it's just just a, a very, very clever plot twist. It was, and it was loosely based on the real experiences of some people that they knew who had been silent film stars that did not translate to the talkies. But rather than make it the tragic story about the end of a popular career, they found the comedic twist to put on it because they wanted it to be happy because that's the tone of the music that they had to use. And the biggest key to that, well, the biggest key to that is to have the person who the tragic thing happens to be totally unlikable. And they did a great job with that. And that was, uh, was it Gene Hagen? Yeah. Gene Hagen was Lena Lamont. Lamont. And from what I understand, Gene Hagen had a little bit of Lena Lamont in her. Uh, that wasn't all acting, from what I've heard. Uh, I, I do remember entirely, there was some. But I'm sorry. Yeah, there was some of that. It wasn't entirely acting, but I mean, it's a little bit weird how reality mirrors the movies. Because when it came to Would You, the big romantic number, and we will get back to talking about the dance sequence with Gene Kelly and Singing in the Rain, uh, but for that one, Debbie Reynolds couldn't do that slow ballad so gene hagan actually dubbed debbie reynolds as kathy selden singing kathy selden dubbing for <laughs> lena lamont kind of ironic so, yeah that was gene hagan's natural voice when she did lena lamont like 
when they had her in to cast, they told her like the real silent movie star they were based on, like, can you do a voice like that? And it just came out. Like she nailed it right off the bat. That's why she was cast. Or one of the reasons anyway, because she was also under MGM contract. But the original so the original script for the Singing on the Rain number was a number with Gene Kelly, Donald O'Connor, and Debbie Reynolds. That would have been what filled the story role of Good Morning mm-hmm. in the original script. And Gene Kelly said he wanted to do a solo number, and they said, you don't want anything to do with it. He said, yeah, I think it's going to be raining, and I'm going to be singing. <laughs> well, and I, so I, I got to say, I think it's it was not a bad choice, though, because Good Morning no. is one of the best moments in the film, and Singing in the Rain is, you know, that's a, a classic moment in movie making so i i think they they i think they made the right choices they pr- pushed all the right buttons on it uh but just they did on and it was so hard to do because it was the like the street that they were doing it on as part of the warner brothers backlot mm-hmm. and they had that thing engineered so they would never develop puddles so if they had to flood the street it would drain quickly and they could reset for the next shot so they did thousands and thousands of dollars damage tamping the street to produce the puddles. And then they had to go back and fix it afterwards. When it came time to film it, Gene Kelly had a fever. So he was out there with a temperature of 102 Fahrenheit filming that whole sequence. Well, it, it was so much. And it's so hard to get rain to show on film because to get something to show on film, well, you think, well, how hard is it? You point the lights at it, but that works when light reflects off the thing and into the camera to get rain while you can still clearly see him needs intense lights in both directions because you can't reflect light off rain. It's transparent. You have to backlight it and let it scatter to see it. So you need bright lights behind the rain to get the rain to show up on film and another bright light in front on Gene Kelly. So he's not in shadow. It was incredibly difficult to get it lit and have the camera move and do the puddles. It was not an easy thing to shoot. But again, Gene Kelly, he's a taskmaster. He's like, no, this is what's going to make the best possible film. This is the day we have to do it. We're doing it today and we're getting it done. You make it work. One of the moments in that sequence that's it's almost so it's almost just a little throw in, but I, I really like it. It's just a. I don't know, it just sets a tone, is, you know, he's dancing around, he's using the, the umbrella as a prop, and there's a man walking in the rain looking miserable because he's getting all wet, and, and Gene Kelly just kind of hands him the umbrella and then goes on dancing. And you see that guy, as the guy's walking away, he just opens the umbrella and he's using it. Like it like it didn't phase him in the slightest. And I, I just I thought that was a nice little touch in there. Yeah, and if anything, he picks up the pace. Mm-hmm. He's like getting out of there. So, but yeah, and, and again, you know, you talk about how difficult it was to make that scene. Much like the Donald O'Connor scene, it is done in a very, very upbeat, lighthearted way, so that you don't, you know, you don't sense any of that difficulty in doing it. Everything looks so natural as he's doing it, which mm-hmm. is just terrific. And that's what, that's one of the things that makes it fun. Uh, I've always said, you know, when you see people performing, whether it's singing, acting, whatever it is they're doing. Uh, it's always more enjoyable to me if I get the sense that they're enjoying doing it. And that was yeah. the sense I got in this movie. And, you know, you, you talk about Debbie Reynolds and how grueling it was for her. And, you know, maybe it wasn't so pleasant for her, but she doesn't, her performance doesn't give that up. Her performance no, makes it you, seem like she's enjoying every moment of it. 
Yeah, you would think that the entire cast and crew were having a blast based on what you see on the screen. Yes, at least very much I did. So. I just thought like this must have been one of the, the fondest memories making this film for everybody involved. And it wasn't like Gene Kelly thought this was going to be forgettable and an American in Paris was going to be his magnum opus. But yeah. it, there's so many talented people, people in here who went on to greater careers that we barely see. I mean, there's Debbie Reynolds. And like I said, I do want to get to the story, but when my mom actually met her, at her one woman show, sure. Uh, but this introduced Sid Charisse, who would go on to be one of the, the dancers and star opposite Gene Kelly and Brigadoon. And you know, you know the connection uh, to uh, listen to listen to the prophets there, right? Oh, I should. I think she did eventually show up on Star Trek, did she not? If she did, it was because of the connection, which is okay. her her niece is Nana Visitor, who played Kira Norris. Right, that's the one. Um, did you catch the connection to the 1966 Batman in this movie? 1966 Batman? No, not offhand. Maybe what, when you tell I mean, me, it might, it might, it might uh, be obvious, and, and I'll kick myself, but let's hear. When the movie opens, and they're, everyone's showing up for the premiere of The Royal Rascal, and Dora Bailey is there interviewing them on the red oh, carpet. And Harriet. Yes. Yes, I, I didn't connect that at all until you just brought me there uh yeah because she she did lose a lot of weight in the 14 intervening years um did you recognize the diction coach who was working with gene hagen or lena lamont the one who said round tones round tones so let me hear you read your lines only with the roll bars i can't do uh i'm trying to remember now she was definitely familiar to me but i don't know off the top of my head uh she's got uh you look her up on the IMDb, she's played small parts in a lot of movies. And what may be better known to the more modern audiences, or at least to, to our generation, a lot of people would know her better as, you know, the quote-unquote the penguin, i.e. the the nun in the Blues Brothers. Yeah, I, I did recognize her as one of the actresses who looks familiar because you've seen her in a thousand different things over the years. Uh, but I did not remember that it was from the Blues Brothers. Okay. But, but I'm um, sure, I guarantee you, she was in 30 different sitcom episodes that I've seen and probably another two dozen, uh, you know, crime dramas. Yeah, she wasn't, as far as I could tell, she wasn't the star in anything major, but she was supporting players in everything, that kind of actress. And then uh, one more. There is a direct connection to both West Side Story and Where on Earth is Carmen Sandiego in this? Rita Moreno? That's the one. Okay, so I was able to get one of them. <laughs> that makes me feel better. Yeah, yeah the, the woman who plays Zelda in this, who's the one that actually eventually tips off Lena yeah. to what's going on. She was Anita in West Side Story and Carmen Sandiego in Where on Earth is Carmen Sandiego. She had a uh, very varied career to the point where she even played a part on the uh, HBO uh, drama Oz as a uh, prison, I think she was a psychiatrist. But I think so. Um, the IMDb has her four most prominent credits as West Side Story, Sister Peter Marie Rema something from Oz, uh, Carmen Sandiego, and where on earth is Carmen Sandiego, and tipped him in the 1956 version of The King and I, 
with Deborah Carey and Yul Brenner. You know, I've never seen The King and I. Yeah, when, when, when I, they put out these I was lists raised on of, musicals, so I can, when we're done, I can run through where I rank all the various musicals, and I've watched many, and which ones I would recommend and which ones I wouldn't. But, when, you know, when they put out these lists of all these movies that, you know, you, you must see, sometimes I'm very disappointed with how many of them I still need to see. <laughs> like, I, I, I feel like, you know, and I'm, I'm in my mid-50s, but I've, and I've spent a lifetime watching these movies, although... I was in my 20s by the time VCRs became uh, available, or I was around 20 when that happened. So I, I, some people had a head start on me because they're younger and they had them had access to these movies their whole lives. I didn't have cable or VCR until uh, I got significantly older. Uh, but I have a list of so many movies that are on my to-watch list. And, and uh, you know, you, you, some, it seems like every time you and I have a conversation, several of them come up. Yeah, I... I think that's about fair. <laughs> Do the same on my watch list. But this is what happens when you have two died in the wool movie fans who are open to any era or genre at least once. We were watching uh, the Academy Awards this year, and you know I'm, I'm hot and cold on the Academy Awards. Uh, but when they were showing clips of great old movies, I commented that this, you know. I see this, and it makes me want to see all these movies. Uh, the Broadway yeah. mel- melody sequence, I have to say, you know, to ch- I, I don't have very many criticisms of this movie, but I thought that was slightly overlong. Yeah, one of the standard tropes of the classic, you know, 50s and 60s musicals, and even a little bit in the late 40s, is to have the long abstract dance number. So the, the pure modern dance, the one where they just tell the dancers and choreographers, okay, go nuts, you don't have to strictly adhere to the story. You could do something that's really out there and go wild, just so that they can satisfy the creative urges. And that's what that piece is in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I would agree that it is, it, it's longer than it needs to be, but that's one... I talked about how my issue with the An American of Paris, or one of my issues, is that I found the dance numbers supplant the story rather than support it. And Broadway Melody is pushing very hard in that direction. Well, I, I think if you excised that scene from the movie, you wouldn't lose anything story-wise. No, you wouldn't. And part of that might be because they had to redraft it and re-choreograph it, because... Gene Kelly had to go back to shoot the big ballet finale for An American in Paris. That was a four-month interruption. By the time he came back, Donald O'Connor was now tied into the next Francis the Talking Mule movie, so they had to completely redo the big finish, because originally it was supposed to be the two of them together in a big finish. Mm -hmm. So it was redone from scratch and introduced Sid Charisse in her first major movie role. And yeah, it went from there. So it is one where, I mean, as a kid watching it on VHS, like I said that this was one of the ones I watched on loop, but Broadway Melody and the the number, I think it was Would You when they were in the soundstage, because, you know, to express himself, Don Lockwood had to take her onto a soundstage and, mm-hmm. you know, fired up the fan and all that. Basically, the two slow ballads, those were the ones that I would fast forward as a child. And but that one, the first one was not quite as lengthy. 
And, no, it and, was, and I thought it was it short. Fit, it was just a slow paced song, but yes. it absolutely served the story. Yeah, it, it fit into the story. It, it moved the story forward, even if it did so at a slower pace. Uh, whereas, like I said, Broadway, Broadway Melody, I think they could have done uh, they could have done a one minute thing, and the story would not have been affected in the slightest. But you know, it, it almost struck me as a little bit of an ego thing that he had to have that in there, which it may well have been. It may have been, and some of it was that the studio was looking for a piece to show off Sid Charisse, and Gene Kelly checked, they had him in to check her out to say, like, do you have a role for her in one of your movies? And he was really impressed with her outright dancing talent and said, yeah, we'll, we'll make it work and put her in Singing in the Rain. Not in, in American in Paris, but in Singing in the Rain, because he had less faith in that, so he was okay sort of co-opting it to showcase her. Right. And I can't help but wonder if they hadn't brought him in to showcase Sid Charisse and push her. Would Broadway Melody have been him saying, gotta dance, and going from agent to agent, you know, come in, wow the people in the speakeasy, and then head out for the big finale and just skip everything where we see Sid Charisse at this point? Yeah, I think it would have been fine that way. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that's, that's yeah. probably the only significant criticism I have of the old, whole movie. I think the rest of it, it, it moves along at a fairly good pace, uh, it's got some funny moments. It's got some catchy songs. There's really, I don't really have any other negatives for it. I don't know if you have anything else that you would uh, point to as a negative. Nothing really problematic. I mean, I do find that Douglas Fowley as Roscoe Dexter, when they're doing the flashbacks, mm-hmm. some of his line readings are kind of awkward, especially in the flashbacks and a little bit later. But, you know, the right before Gene Kelly steps forward as Don Lockwood and says, hey, I think I could do that when he's going, no, no, you're supposed to go over the bar and break into the and smash into the glasses. You got it. OK, Bert, Bert, Bert. Oh, swell. Just swell. That whole thing I find forced. It just did not flow naturally. Hmm. OK. Yeah. You know, I, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with you. It didn't it didn't stand out as bothering me, but. Now that you point it out, I would say, yeah, that that's true. They could have yeah. they could have had those lines delivered a little better. Uh, I think he was meant to be a two dimensional character, and they just let it go that way. Yeah, he was meant to be a bit of a caricature, and it just it didn't. I don't remember how many times I watched it before that started to wear on me. I remember that bothered me a bit as a kid, but I don't know if that was like something that bothered me on the first viewing or the hundredth viewing. Because, like I said, this was one of the ones in regular rotation and I have always been a morning person to the point where I could watch an entire movie before school every day. Mm-hmm. So another thing we have in common. Yeah. So there's a few of these. I, but yeah, I wouldn't have a lot else against it, at least in terms of the finished product on screen. I mean, like I said, apparently things weren't quite so happy behind set. Like Debbie Reynolds said in her one woman show, um, and to get back to that story before we start wrapping things up, you know, my mom went to get her autograph afterwards. And when she said, you know, please make it out to Glynis, Debbie Reynolds would, oh, you know what? I, that, that's not a very common name, but I've got a good friend named Glynis. And my mom explained how the whole, yeah, it was named after Glynis Johns coming back from one of her movies. And my, you know, when her mother went into labor and Debbie Reynolds said, Glynis Johns is the friend I was talking about. I need to let her know. <laughs> so. Um, and if listeners don't know Glynis Johns by name, I would say she's probably best known as Mrs. Banks and Mary Poppins these days. Right. Okay. 
So, yeah, that, that's kind of cool. It's, it's just a shame she didn't say, why don't you give me your number and I'll have Glennis give you a call. Yeah, but, again, this was, well, this would have been early 2000s, like 10, 15 years ago. It was after Mother, for sure. Right. The uh, Albert Brooks movie, because he took his, yeah, Albert Brooks was born Albert Einstein because his dad thought it would be funny, but Albert Brooks renamed himself after his dad's vaudeville partner because he said, no, I'm not living my life as Albert Einstein. And just to, for the trivia point of view, uh, and his brother is Super Dave Osborne, who now yeah. has a uh, recurring role on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah, born Bob Einstein. Yes. And, and he kept the name because he didn't. You could be Einstein or you can be Albert, but being both is the issue. <laughs> Okay, so I All guess right. I guess it's probably is time to start wrapping it up and yeah, I think there's what the the box office performance and then the jazz scale are about all we got left. About yeah, cuz we're not going to talk about the score cuz we've been talking about the individual songs throughout. So the uh, yeah. did you look up the uh, box office or no? No, I deliberately didn't because I I think it's a more interesting podcast when your guest doesn't know. Okay. Um, what so, I know for sure is that and American in Paris had a bigger impact on it than that. Because I know that MGM had this in theaters, but Louis B. Mayer decided he was going to push an American in Paris for best picture at the Oscars that year. And part of his marketing drive to do that was as soon as Singing in the Rain hit the break even point, they pulled it from theaters. And any theater that had Singing in the Rain booked was sent an American in Paris with posters saying back by popular demand instead. Mm. to make it seem like it was super popular and drive it and get it in the consciousness. So it would not have been profitable in theaters because I know they pulled it as soon as it hit break even. Well, you got to factor in this is from an era when movies would be re-released because yeah. 1952, you wouldn't even have the TV broadcast of it yet. And yeah, it's it, certainly not in Technicolor. Yeah, and TVs it, wouldn't, existed, it wouldn't be, but they weren't a huge market. Yeah, it wouldn't be until the late 60s or early 70s that people would have the ability to watch it in color. And even then, they're watching it on a small screen. And this this is a movie that deserves a big screen. I'm saying I'm think it's I think it's fine on my 50 inch flat screen, but mm -hmm. to watch it on a 20 inch black and white, no, I don't think it would do it justice. No, you so, wouldn't want to watch it on TVs in the day because the Technicolor was used very well. The, the colors were bright and vibrant and saturated, which, again, suits the film. So with and all that in mind, panels. and with it in mind that there were re-releases, let's first get to the yeah. budget. What do you think in 1952 it would cost to make a movie like this? Excuse me. Um, knowing what I know from other films, my gut instinct would have been $2 million, but it probably went above that because of the production delays and bringing everyone back together and because of what they had to do just to get the singing and the rain sequence together, not to mention everything for that flashback. So it's probably going to be more like $2.5 million. Which is exactly budget. a bullseye. Two okay. point two, according to Wikipedia, $2.5 million production. Okay. And now then, box office. So I would say um, at the time, given what MGM was willing to invest in advertising, I would say the first run probably would have been more like the two to two and a half times the production budget to hit break even. So it probably started 
at about the five million mark, maybe closer to the six million mark. But I I know that after that it kind of faded, and because it was pulled so early, it didn't really come into resurgence and get a lot of wide redistribution until that's entertainment came out and it pushed it again. So it's probably not going to go much over that, that five to six million, maybe seven at the most. Okay. Well, you, you couldn't have been more right on the budget, but you're a little off on the uh, box office, which was 12.4 million. Okay. So, you know, it was, I, I don't know how much of that came in the later days, but your, your, uh, your anecdote about them, not pushing it as hard is probably 100% accurate. Uh, okay. And it, it probably could have been a bigger money maker than it was. And, and, you know, maybe this would have been the 1953 Academy Awards uh, winner if they had given this the proper uh, handling instead of putting it on the back burner for an American in Paris. Maybe. But what, what won uh, in 1953? Do you know offhand the, for, for the 1952 year? Um. Not offhand, but I have that spreadsheet open. The greatest show on earth. Okay, so yeah, I could see, uh, I could see this having beaten that out if they if it had gotten the proper push. Yeah. But just the same, uh, you know, it is what it is. And the question though is, is it Jaws? And I'll give the Jaws scale very quickly. If you're ranking it yours, you're saying it's an all-time classic, a great movie, very few flaws, if any. Jaws 2, a very solid movie, worthy of repeat viewings, but not quite at that great all-time classic level. Jaws 3, you know, some enjoyment out of it, not really the most memorable movie, not great, but nothing terrible. Jaws 4, terrible. Blaine? Okay, um... I'm going to say that, yeah, I do have general problems with musicals, and it is the one that you alluded to. I need to understand why people are bursting out into song. And that's an issue I have with a lot of musicals. This one gets over that quite nicely, because the only people who just randomly burst out into song are the three main cast characters. Right? You've got Don Lockwood, Kathy Selden, and Cosmo Brown. And that's who they are. They are song and dance people from the start. That's what they want to do. That's what they love. Anything else that's a bigger production is a bigger production made for a musical film. So that's none of those red flags go up for me here because, yeah, you have justification on screen for why every song and dance number is happening. So this is one where I would say, yeah, this is Jaws. I mean, in the general, I talked about how that was my acid test for the silent films. Give me half an hour of the general. If you want to turn it off, I will never bother you to watch a silent film again. I've never actually done that with musicals, but I think that Singing in the Rain could serve that purpose. We know it's not your all-time favorite musical, but I think it's fair to say, if you watch the first half hour of Singing in the Rain and don't want to watch the rest, you're probably not going to find what you're looking for in the musical genre in general. I'm going to say if you get through Make Them Laugh and you still feel like you could turn the movie off, then that's, then it's not for you. Uh, but I would say give it until then. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I have to generally agree with you. I'm going to give it the qualification of saying it is a musical. So for some people, musicals just don't fit what they want to see. And if you're one of those people... 
if you if you're one of the if you know for a fact you are one of those people, then you probably just shouldn't watch this at all. If you say, well, I don't know when I want to see if there's any musicals I can like, this is certainly a great one to do a test case for. Because if you don't like this, you're not going to like many many others. Uh, again, West Side Story is my all time favorite. I don't know for a fact that it's a better movie. There might be an element of nostalgia to that because I saw that as a very young kid and have always loved it. Uh, but as far as musicals go, with the exception of the fact that I thought that the one sequence was a little long, I have a tough time really coming up with any flaws in this movie. And even for me, while that sequence was long, I think people who truly appreciate song and dance numbers might appreciate that more than I did anyway. So, yeah, I think I got to rank it as Jaws, and I don't necessarily dispute the claim that it's the greatest American musical. It's just not my greatest American musical. Yeah, and, I mean, to be fair, Singing in the Rain did not win any Oscars, although it was nominated for original score for the orchestral pieces, um, and Gene Hagen was nominated for actress. But supporting other actress. musicals... Yeah, sorry, supporting actress, but, yeah, other... Other musicals have made Best Picture, including West Side Story for the 1961 releases. Uh, the Sound of Music and My Fair Lady got it in, well, Sound of Music 65, My Fair Lady 64. Sound of Music and West Side Story both being directed by Robert Wise, I believe. Mm-hmm. And it's, fun, it's funny, though, like, by the time you got to 64, 65, the musical was pretty much a dying breed. But the Academy hadn't realized that yet. Because <laughs> then oh, you, no, see, that, you, see, you see some of the musicals that were made. You know, in that era, you know, the Dr. Doolittle and uh, uh, just, yeah. you know, like uh, Lost Horizon. Uh, you, you know, you could just well, see like they, they died. They died a slow lingering death. And although I can find some pluses in those movies and like certain aspects of them, you could see they, they were grasping at straws at that point, trying to keep the musical alive. Yeah, I think one of the biggest mistakes in Academy history is when Oliver won Best Picture for the 1968 releases. Mm. Not that Oliver is a bad movie or an undeserving movie, but that was the same year that 2001 A Space Odyssey, The Original Planet of the Apes, How the West Was Won, and Rosemary's Baby were released, and none of those were even nominated. Yeah, that's kind of kind of scary that they didn't even nominate any of those and you look at the field for that year it was oliver funny girl the lion in winter rachel rachel and romeo and juliet yeah i think it's rochelle rochelle is how they pronounced it but yeah (coughs) oh excuse me uh i just think of seinfeld when i hear rochelle rochelle (laughs) yeah but yeah they were talking about but yeah uh but just just you know, you, you mentioned some all-time classics, and I would say the movies that were nominated were mostly not. I mean, there's, you know, Barbra Streisand fans out there who will tell you Funny Girl is an all-time classic. And I guess there's some, you know, I, I saw Oliver as a kid. I think I went on a class trip with my school at the time, and we saw it at Radio City. Saw a lot of, lot of very memorable movies at Radio City back when I was a kid. Uh, and I enjoyed it very much, and I still do. But Best Picture, I don't think up so. in New York. Yes. Well, now they don't even show movies at Radio City anymore. They just have the Rockette, you know, Christmas show and whatever. Yeah. Well, yeah, of those, like those four I mentioned are pretty much universally considered to be better movies than Oliver. I haven't seen How the West Was Won. I can heartily recommend Planet of the Apes and 2001 A Space Odyssey, 2001 being my all-time favorite movie. 
uh, Rosemary's Baby. I enjoyed the first and only time I watched it and thought, wow, that's amazing. You know, what else can I find by this director? And ran Roman Polanski's name through Google and discovered that I will never be able to shut off my brain and just watch any movie he's directed ever again. Because mm-hmm. he's a bad, bad man. Yeah. <laughs> so just leave it at that. <laughs> Anybody wants to know why he's yeah. such a bad man, if you don't know already, just Google him. Yeah, but, but the Ro- information you know, is easy to come by. <laughs> much like Roman Polanski, Rosemary's Baby to me is almost a defining uh, movie for the word creepy. And, and, yeah. and, and Roman Polanski is also creepy. So... <laughs> It goes yeah. well. Uh, anyway, thanks for coming on again, Blaine. I appreciate it. Good night, Kathy. See you tomorrow. Good night, darling. Take care of that throat. You're a big singing star now, remember? This California dew is just a little heavier than usual tonight. Really? From where I stand, the sun is shining all over the place.
dancing and singing in the rain. Thank you.